0: Hey Sandy. What is going on?
1: Well, I have had a week of talking to other podcasts actually.
0: Ooh, that's
1: exciting. Where can we hear you? Yeah, um the first one was with Rob Rousseau at the 49th Para hell podcast, which is one of my favorite names. <laughs> for a Great name. Yeah. Uh, and so you can check that out. It, it was a really good conversation. We we talked mostly about how just like you can't trust the government and cops, and how everything's bad. So kind of like Sandy Nora, but like a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, where else? The other one, uh, the episode I think comes out this week, and it was with Mo Amir, who hosts Van Color, which is a really great podcast out of Vancouver. And mm. I mean, if you're from Vancouver, you know of it. If you're not, um, definitely check that out. And so I want to give a shout out to Mo, who's a big fan of our podcast too. So that was really, it was a really fun conversation. And we ran the whole list of possible topics to talk about. So it was really, it was really good. So, so hey to both Mo and Rob and thanks so much for having me on. And uh, you guys are cool. And also in Dog Island, if you don't know Dog Island, it's, um, it's kind of like a internet shitposting leftists from Halifax who talk about a lot of local politics but some national as well and it's uh it's super good it's left wing and you should check out Dog Island too so
0: hey to all of those folks what is up with you well i've got my first exam tomorrow <laughs> normally this podcast would be taking a break so i could study but you know i have entered the who the fuck cares land <laughs> And that's just how we're playing it. So I think, you know, contracts, it'll be fine tomorrow. That's my life. Uh, The the orange tree in the backyard is doing a lot to put smiles on the faces of people inside this home. (laughs) Oh, that's
1: that's so great.
0: Great. Yeah. Yeah. The orange tree that we never pay attention to has given us the best oranges this year. So that's. Amazing. Um, I did want to make a shout out to the folks at Resource Movement. Oh yeah. Resource movement is a group of uh, people who come together knowing that they have a level of economic privilege that is quite high and they can do a lot to support um, other communities. And they've started a Share My Check campaign uh, for those of whom are part of the stimulus movement, or sorry, part of the resource movement and uh, have access to the stimulus check um, uh, donating um, checks to organizations that are doing work to support people in their community. So for example, at Black Lives Matter, one of the things that we've been doing is trying to get people rapid uh, support funds that, you know, don't have a long, um, app, uh, hard to understand application attached or anything like that, just rapid, rapid support funds. And we've given out over fifty thousand dollars so far, and we've also partnered with uh, Food Share in Toronto to give good food boxes of uh, of groceries to people. Um, and so, resource movement is supporting organizations uh, like ours who are doing work like that during this time, um, and you know, trying to trying to help out where the government is failing us. <laughs> so, uh, just a shout out to that. Uh, check out. Uh, resource movement or the share my check campaign and we'll and we'll share that information in the show notes uh, if you happen to be able to uh, to to make some donations at this time
1: and if you have a lot of money like if your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents made a fuck ton of money and you have like a trust fund you know consider getting involved with the resource movement because it's a pretty cool way to try and rebalance Wealth that um, our society lets people concentrate and not have to part with, which is unfortunate. So, they're cool. Check them out.
0: Very cool. Speaking of donations, do we have some people to thank, Nora? We so do. So, I, like considering
1: how the times are so strange, and and you know, we we see people's kinds of patterns, looking at who's listening and and when they're listening, and so there's no question that the lack of commuting has really hurt the podcasting industry. Um, We used to have a a really strong bump on Mondays. A lot of folks would listen to us the Monday after the the episode came out. Um, You know, Monday is not so much listened to anymore. And so um, when we do see new people or people continuing their their, their financial support for us, it's really awesome. It's really wonderful. And so thank you so much this week to Nick, Ben, Amin, Raf, Barbara, Julie, and Andy. Uh, We really appreciate your new pledges, your new levels of pledging, and everybody that's uh, always um, offering to help this show out with your financial resources. We
0: really, really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so, so much. Now, we got a lot to talk about today. I mean, just things, the whole world just changes week to week, huh? Like (laughs) What you can expect (laughs) is always... So unexpected. But Nora, you know, you're out there in Quebec. I imagine that you were so excited to get your kids back to school. (laughs) no yeah probably not yeah
1: yeah, things are really weird in the province of Quebec so you know in case you haven't been paying attention to the news there's been more people that have died in Quebec from COVID-19 than everyone else in the rest of Canada combined Um, there are more cases here there are Unbelievable institutional outbreaks. There are some institutions in the province with 100 of the residents uh, sick with COVID 19. And you know, you look at this at this kind of landscape we're in. I've explained on previous episodes why or how we found ourselves in in this in this situation. And and it mostly is, of course, because of the way that Quebecers travel. So the the number of cases that were imported to Quebec there was an interesting list. Um, that uh, that made the rounds this past week, and it said that you know most of our cases came from the United States, which is not too surprising, with a with a sizable chunk of cases coming from Austria, which would be ski getaways, um, and Puerto Rico, which would be uh, cruise getaways, <laughs> and so the combination of the holiday uh, rush at the beginning of March, which was our March break, of course, led to this like much m- m- much harder to contain situation. And so here we are eight weeks later, you know, we've all been locked down. The economy has been shut down mostly and things are not getting better. I mean, every day there's been between, I don't know, 70 and 120 people dying. And, um, and the numbers are not really, I mean, the number of infections are not kind of exploding, but they're certainly not slowing down. And so looking at this, this map or this situation, our government has said, you know, what we need we need to get kids back into school.
0: <laughs> it just, When I saw that news, I was like, I must be reading this incorrectly. Maybe the English news is is wrong. Let me open up some French news and like slowly read <laughs> this um, because that's all my French brain can do. And I was <laughs> like, this is real. Like they really are planning to get kids back in school by what is it? May 11th, I think. Yeah. Is it yeah. May 11th? And I, it sounds like they're planning to do like they they want to reduce class sizes to with a cap of 15 i think and i'm just wondering like what's the plan to protect the teachers like how are the unions responding this just seems like such a disastrous plan and you know for for all of the governments who keep talking about oh we got to open up the schools and we got to do this um would always mention you know, Sweden being like, Sweden, you know, Sweden, they didn't, they didn't shut down, their economy's doing just fine. And as uh, if you're paying attention this week, you'll see that uh, Sweden's cases have started to skyrocket. So there's nothing even to point to as a like, this is the way to go forward. Um, And it just seems like a recipe for disaster where disaster has already struck. And That's pretty scary. Yeah. But I'm also thinking about the impact of this uh, from the lens of who is going to be unable to make the decision to not send their kids to school, like who's going to be the most at uh, risk, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. obviously the people who have been deemed essential workers uh, who are forced to continue working through this. Uh, who we know are at the margins in our society um, are are likely going to um, have the hardest time making the decision to not send their kids back to school if they're you know leaving their kids home all day alone and those are the the, the children who are going to be at most risk and then of course their families' members are going to be at the most risk as well in addition to the teachers who uh, potentially can't make the decision to not to just not go to work like I'm not <sighs> You know, I, are, are those teachers going to be eligible for uh, the CERB if they refuse to go to work? I don't know. Like, what is what does this look like?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of questions. And so it's important to to, to talk about how these decisions were made in the first place. And then I'll try to address some of your, your questions, because it, like it really is it's such a bad situation. The plan to reopen the schools was developed by the government alone. They did not talk
0: to the teachers uh, to come up with a plan that was workable.
1: And the only always
0: <laughs> makes the most sense to ignore the workers when coming up with a plan for the workers.: Oh, it, it, exactly. It's like a
1: red flag the size of um, like the entire island of Montreal. <laughs> Like, yeah, they have said that this was their plan when they announced it. They had that 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 cap on classes that you talked about. Uh, they said that they're limiting it only to elementary school. So there's no high schools that are going in, which is interesting. Um, and so that means that it's only basically kids up until the age of 12 that will be in school because high school starts here in grade seven outside of Quebec. And that the teachers would not be wearing any PPE. They don't need it. The daycare workers all have to wear masks. (laughs) So it's like,
0: okay, um, what's the logic behind that? They're they're going to mandate that teachers not wear protective equipment? I'm not sure
1: if they're going to mandate it or if they're saying that it's not necessary, therefore they're not providing it. So like if a school had a situation where all everyone showed up wearing masks like I don't imagine the government would shut it down but the 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 logistics around this i mean think about this so so they have to the schools have to respect social distancing that's what the government has said and so that means that every child has to be in a in a 2 meter ...radius box away from another student. And I don't know if you've been in, a, in a, an elementary school classroom lately. There's not much space in these places, right? Usually you've got, like, in a two-meter meter radius box... ...you're going to have, like, fucking six lockers... ...or four other seats for other kids, right? And so it's like, okay. So they're going to limit it to 15... Are the classes big enough to allow for social distancing with only 15 kids per class? Uh, How do you determine which kids don't go to class? Because 15 is not what our class sizes are. I mean, in kindergarten, they're not that much bigger than that. Thank God we're not like the rest of Canada where there's huge class sizes in kindergarten. But in the upper grades, the classes start to get bigger. And then you've got the situation with teachers who refuse for whatever reason to to go in. And so then they need to have more personnel to have more classes because the classes have to be smaller. Then you need more classrooms. And what we've been told... Is that the children will not be leaving their class, and so as it is now, if they have, if they have um, gym, if they have any special they programming, they won't be
0: leaving
1: class. No, no one is allowed to have leave the people, class. Have these
0: people? Do these people know? children i know i know have they met them like how are they going? how are they going to force them to first if you're going to keep them all in a room in one day like those are going to be some very difficult ch- children yeah also how do you force children to socially distance yeah i know some kids they're hard to not uh to keep away <laughs> At <laughs> the times. if they if they want to touch other kids <laughs> you know if they want to like hug or play or whatever they're going to fucking do it and yep. 15 kids to control keeping them 6 feet apart from each other at all times when they're not allowed to leave the classroom sounds like a recipe for a certain disaster
1: yeah and in the whole way that the system here is is designed it's really interesting because like when I grew up I grew up in a school that didn't have a cafeteria or anything like that and lunch we ate at our desk and so we were in our classroom we'd have lunch at our desks and then we'd go out for recess and there was like a, a monitor that came in from class to class to make sure the kids weren't uh, whatever, having food fights or whatever. And that's not at all. I mean, I don't think that that's how a lot of people grew up, but that's what my experience was. But here there's a whole system of, of, um, of daycare for children at the school. And and so lunch is something that is actually a, in addition to your school, your school day. So, so teachers technically stop teaching every day at whatever time lunch starts at, let's say 1130, and then they come back at one. And for the period of time between 1130 and one, either you go home uh, or your parents pay for you to be at the service to guard, to be at the daycare. And so the government has mandated that, that service to guard has to only have 10 kids. Which seems even weirder to me because service to guard is a place where you actually have way more kids than 15. You know, I've often seen like you know upwards of 30 kids in a, in a service to guard class as they're waiting for parents to come pick their kids up after school. And so now the service to guard has to come to the classroom, but the ratio is different. So some kids will have to not be, like they're expecting that there will be kids not staying for the whole length of the day. Which makes some sense, except then it gets back to this whole question of choice, which is what I'm the most frustrated by. Because as you said, you know there are there are gonna be families who, who can't make this choice because they, they work, they need their kids to be somewhere. But by opening the whole system to just anyone that wants to go, it's actually allowing parents to say, you know what, yeah, I'd like to have my kids back at school. I'm not that worried about the virus. Um, they can go, even if you can keep them at home. And what that does is it puts tremendous strain on the system for the kids that have to be there and just piles more kids into the classroom rather than thinking through okay what would a a service look like for kids of parents that have to go to work and they have to go somewhere but that isn't school you know like they they just they've just completely bypassed the thinking outside the box it's the it's spring how can we have outdoor classes or how can we turn this into day camp or how do we have mixed age classes of small numbers of, of kids to try and like you know make them do something interesting in the day but make it manageable no no they're just like it's going to be school you're going back to school and then we find out a week before school the kids probably won't have the same teacher they won't be in the same class with the same classmates and they won't be doing any of the activities that they did before and they can't leave class and they're going to be eating at their desks and 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 parents have to have their their arrival and departure staggered because we can't go in at the same time. It is just like, it seems completely
0: unworkable and we are a week out of them having to figure all of this out. And as you say, in terms of thinking outside the box, like, doesn't it make sense to just do that right now? Summer is coming up. Like, even if you open up the schools, school is done soon. And so what is your plan after that to just continue this haphazardly put together, obviously dangerous situation I would say don't do that it sounds like right now instead of rushing to get kids back into school in this um, environment that seems wholly unworkable why not use this time to think about a solution that could help parents uh, who need it um, and could support the children who need it rather than just relying on a system that we know is just not going to work it just seems uh, like such folly
1: Well, it's also cruel. I mean, like, you know, I I ran into someone that works at the school and it just like the stress that this is causing the staff at the school, teachers and and, and other staff is immense, is totally immense. And it's like, you know, that ranges from I'm personally afraid that I'm going to get sick all the way to I'm not afraid I'm going to get sick, but this is not possible. Like we have to move tables and chairs and we have to like completely rearrange what the kids have been taught like grilled in from day one this is how the school operates right because everything's very regimented right you go from this door to that door and you put your your bag on the hook there and then you do this everything's going to be up for uh, something different and something new and so you know at the start of this like I have one kid that was just in complete like horrible horrible T- t- tantrums, I guess, for a, a, a week when he realized that he's not going back to school and one kid that's loving it. And, um, <laughs> when I was able to say that, you know, but you're not going back to the same class, you're not going to have the same classmates necessarily. And everything's gonna be different. It made it a lot easier for me to just be like, you know, I, I, I don't think that we have, um, a government that is, that cares much at all about public sector workers. And I think that they are banking on, uh, the fact that kids don't get this illness that badly that the statistics are saying because they keep referencing that as a fact and you know as a parent that spend a lot of time in the hospital I can just say like okay I mean sure <laughs> I'm not I'm not signing up for 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 that I'm not signing up for every single day that they're in school me being freaked out every time a kid sneezes or has a runny nose like that's just too much stress and for the parents that have no choice every additional child in that classroom is even more stress on that system and on the possibilities that people are going to get sick. And and like the examples of, of how the, the government has dealt with these emergency daycares in schools, because there have been emergency care open, is um, is not great. Like there was um, a representative from the the groups that uh, the, the Federation of CPOs, which is like uh, the public daycare system. And they said that there was one uh, place in Montreal, one CPO, where, where there was like an outbreak. And the director of the Pierre shut the the, the place down, saying we have an outbreak. This this isn't going to be this is you know go home, uh, isolate. And then uh, they had their wrist slapped by the ministry for making the decision to to shut down. What? So, like you know, it takes a tremendous amount of faith in the government to do the right thing. And considering how we're all still in the fog of uh, the pandemic. It just seems like as you say, total folly and and needlessly cruel to put the the province's families uh oh
0: my through gosh is uh are Lego and Robert's are their kids going back? Do we know? <laughs> Do they have families? Roberts used to teach <laughs> elementary school, okay, so that is actually quite strange because like one <laughs> of the things that I think about all this is like yeah. they obviously don't give a shit about teachers because even if you're saying things like... Uh, it doesn't affect kids that much, even though we know like kids have different responses to it. It depends, really. Um, but uh, like teachers, hello, like there's a lot of adults around these kids and it just seems like they don't give a shit about that. So that that is very strange to hear that this guy was a teacher and is making those kinds of comments.
1: Yeah, I think what's really at play here is that the CAC knows who their base is and their base is not really parents like me. Uh, their base is absolutely not anyone that lives in Montreal. Like, they were mostly, like, shut out of Montreal in the last election. And and so they're playing to people in parts of the province where the the infection rate hasn't been that bad. But, you know... Montreal is really bad, and the fact that they're talking about opening schools in Montreal is really fucked up. Um, there, you know, I had someone text me and say, "Are they doing this because they just think that the rest of Montreal is uh, the rest of Quebec is racist enough to not give a rat's ass about who dies in Montreal?" Um, and I was like, "That, you know, that's a that's something we need to ask ourselves. Actually, why is this? There's this callousness towards what's happening in some ways, um, where it's centralized in the largest." city in this province, but everyone outside of Montreal I think feels like, you know, there's like a mix of relief and distance because we're not in a in a in a situation that's that bad. But that's not even totally true either, because there's still supermarkets that have had outbreaks that have had to shut down. There's been factories that have had outbreaks that have had to shut down. And we know that there's community spread outside of Montreal. So I mean like where I live, I live basically I don't know, 300 meters and a kilometer and a half between the two outbreak sites in Quebec City, where like 40 some odd people have died, and in my neighborhood alone in the upper town, there's 110 people that have the the the, the illness. It's it, it's like it it. The whole idea that the outbreaks are contained within long-term care, even if they're out of control in long-term care, is what underpins this decision. And it, and it requires the population to believe that people are so hived off in their work and their home lives that they're not cross-mixing someone living, you know, someone living within a a long-term care facility, someone working in a long-term care facility, them infecting a child, that child infecting people at school. Like it just, it, it, Mm -hmm. it just does not make any sense. And it feels very much like they are, they're running a massive experiment and the people that will suffer the most are not the people that vote CAC.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of reminds me of that, a uh, weird video that was going around of the uh, governor of Nevada being like, "I I am opening up, I want nev- my citizens to be the, the test." <laughs> yeah. It's like it's what it kind of feels like is happening in Quebec, and that um, is really sad.
1: Yeah, yeah, and like the the, the other dimension to this, uh, uh, which is how you started talking about this, is. Like, who is on the front lines? Who's the most vulnerable? And so, one of the places, well, there's a couple of places where the outbreaks uh, are the absolute worst in, in Montreal. And they are neighborhoods that are very poor or overwhelmingly racialized. So, increasingly, the hotspot in the province is Montreal Nord, Montreal Nord, North Montreal. And, like, in the last week, there has been racist. Uh, um, conspiracy theories saying that the reason why that has had this outbreak is because so much of the asylum seekers who came to Canada through Quebec are now working as personal uh, service workers in North Montreal. And it's their fault. And so now we're starting to see the, the racism that is underpinning a lot of, I think, how people are reacting or not reacting to this situation. Because it's quite easy to just go, that's not me. I'm comfortable. I'm safe. My kids are safe. We're all strong and healthy. It's not going to affect us. And it's quite another thing to be in a neighborhood, obviously, where there's an outbreak here and an outbreak there, and, you're, and your aunt is working at this facility, and your your friend's mother is working at that facility, and, and you know that they're doing everything they can because the facilities have 100% infection rates. While, I mean, next door to us, New Brunswick, has not had a new case in weeks, and still they're not considering going back to school or anything as drastic as we are, it's um,
0: it's really horrible. Yeah, and I mean, we really have to pay attention to this dynamic as governments are starting to talk about opening up the economy, economy way too quickly, in my opinion. But I think a good place to start thinking about that is what parts of the, the economy are still operating. Um, you know, when we shut down the economy, we didn't shut it down completely. There are certain pockets that were left open and certain people that were expected to continue um, to expose themselves um, for the betterment of everybody else. And that right there, um, who who we think is worth protecting societally, and who we are like, okay, fend for yourself until we can figure something else out uh, for you. Uh, I think that's going to deepen and worsen. As governments start to open up uh, too quickly, and so of course I'm talking about essential workers—people who, you know, are um, making our public transportation systems continue to work, uh, people who are a part of making sure that we still get food, whether they're delivering it to us or working in grocery stores, uh, people who are support staff um, in uh, in healthcare facilities. Most of these people. Are are working low wage are low wage workers um, uh, who don't have a lot of resources to begin with, um, who are members of communities of color, black or indigenous. Like these, these are the people who have been expected to to continue life as normal, and that is why in those pockets of uh, the of the population, we see like a disproportionate amount of people being affected. Uh, uh by either uh, you know, getting sick or dying uh, from this disease. And uh, the choices that our governments make in how they open up are going to continue uh, to have an impact on people. Um, one of the policies uh, that I was thinking about this week is uh, you know, the, the um, policy around how they're going to uh, deal with students in Canada who need, um, support. Um, one of the things that the government has talked about is that students are very much like EI. If you if you want to be eligible for the student benefit, you have to certify that you are willing to work, okay? Um, that seems weird at a time when the economy has uh, gone down the drain and there's not a lot of available jobs. Why are they doing that? Well, because uh, they want to make sure that uh, you know, our, our temporary foreign workers for whom some of the, you know, the, the border restrictions are preventing people from coming in and p- literally picking our food in some of the most dangerous workplaces that exist. Um, they're saying that they're going to uh, ship students off to these places. Um, that was one of the ideas that came up by uh, the conservatives and was not, you know, uh, roundly um, thrown out. Um ship students to these places, uh, to do that work. And it's like, okay, well, students who would be desperate, um, to desperate enough to, to make sure that they are, are part of that program, um, to get the benefit that they need. Um, and to do that work would then what be sleeping in the same barracks, uh, which are not socially distancing barracks would have like a whole, like, um, a whole new, way of life, uh, to, uh, to be trained around because this is not easy work. It's not the fact that the government thinks it's so replaceable is, is very strange. And then are also going to be exposing themselves in a way, um, that, uh, right now, again, uh, the most vulnerable in our society are already exposing themselves. And so there's going to be some students who don't have to make that decision and some students who will very much have to make those decisions. And who's that going to be? Who's that going to be? The people who are uh, the least uh, economically stable or financially stable right now and and the people who are desperate um, to, uh, you know, uh, finance uh, their literal lives like eating. So I, you know, like that's just one example of one way how um, a a slight opening up um, can continue to deepen and worsen um, our class divide, our racial divide uh, in society. Well, it depends exactly how you
1: conceive of, like, the people that you're trying to protect. And this is where things are so frustrating to watch a lot of provinces, not just Quebec, uh, wanting to make sure that the majority is able to go back to work, that the economy can open up. And if we considered the people who are most impacted by this virus, we actually would have better public policy, let alone it would be more fair. Right. Like the people who have died, the, the majority of the people who have died in Canada who have been health uh, frontline health workers have been racialized with a with an overrepresentation of Filipina Filipino workers. And the majority of the people who have died in uh, as a result of outbreaks on the job are also workers who are in overwhelmingly low wage racialized positions. And so, you know, I'm not sure if you saw the news, but there's four, um, the, the the Taxi Association of Pearson Airport has said four of their drivers had died. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. There's workers who've died in, uh, in meat processing plants. There's been two workers in the meat processing industry. There's a worker that died in a mine that's near Thunder Bay in Ontario. And... And we know that the second wave is going to be carried by these factory conditions, conditions that don't allow people to socially distance, that, that don't allow people to, um, you know, refuse work. Right. We know that most requests to refuse work in Ontario were denied. And so, the like... It's very frustrating watching all of this as a progressive because this is all stuff we always talk about. And so nothing, like it's just like, "Oh, oh, we we warned you. We warned you. Oh, oh, now we're just witnessing death," right? And and, and government's like, "Oh my god, this is just so, oh, such a disaster. We just couldn't believe this is this was happening." But if we actually had a response in the society that targeted the long-term care facilities in this country, we would have stopped some of these outbreaks. But instead, All of the policy was ushered towards where the majority are going to find themselves, which, you know, public health officials said, well, it's going to be in the hospital. So we're going to marshal all of our resources to hospitals to make sure that people are going out and be able to have a spot if they get really, really ill. And oh, (laughs) most people did not even get to hospital. They died before they got to hospital and they died in conditions that are are horrible. They're too close to one another. There's not any, there's not enough sanitary um, regulations or requirements. Gov- unions are bringing governments to court to demand proper uh, protective equipment. And now the government's like, okay, it's, it, it's been eight uh, weeks. Um, it's time to go back to normal. It's time to open the economy. It's the exact same fucking economy that we had that we had to shut down. And things have not gotten much better. Arguably, they've gotten far worse because when things were shut down, there wasn't that many cases. Yet we knew the cases were coming but we proactively shut down the economy. And so, yeah, so who who's going to be most injured by this? It will be uh, children who are poor, children who have chronic uh, illnesses. It will be... Uh, teachers who have chronic illnesses. It will be the families of of where parents had to work because they were working in low-wage essential services. And rather than looking at the problem of how do we support grocery workers, bus drivers, frontline healthcare workers, let's give them these supports. Let's give them. Let's let's h- find a a a group like let's put teachers into people's homes to help like with their children, right? Because we're not talking about the entire education system. We're talking about some children whose parents work in these essential services and we'll keep the economy closed otherwise. No, 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 that's not good enough. We're just going to open the economy and sorry, everybody in, in Montreal, in uh, in the neighborhoods of Montreal that are the most affected. Um, we're, you know, the army is going to be there to help you guys get, get out of this. It's, it's just, it's so enraging.
0: Yeah. And I don't even think that it's no, 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 that's not good enough. As you're saying, I, I think that they don't even think it's worth a conversation. You know what I mean? Like, I I do not think that there are people who are thinking about the most creative ways that we could um, rearrange ourselves um, to make what our new lives may have to be for the next year or two, as some uh, projections are putting it, um, different and make it work. I don't think they think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. I think that what's happened is on some level, um, you know, governments are like, okay, well, uh... You know, the most important places in society seem to have adjusted well. You know, like people are working from home who work in offices and who, uh, you know, really drive this economy with the billions of dollars moving here and there or whatever. And they're, they're literally not – they're just like, uh, everybody else is disposable. Like, it just I, – I can't figure out how that's not um, the assumption that underlies so much of these policy decisions. It just – it it has to be, it has to be. Otherwise, like those would have been the very first conversations of like, how do we protect people? And it just, it just seems like the lowest rung uh, for for some of of the people in our society. And it's just really fucking disheartening um, to watch this all play out and to see that the decisions of the governments. Um, like the government of Quebec or any other government that's talking about opening up too soon are really, what they're really saying is that some of you are disposable. We know that some of you are going to be in put in harm's way. We know that some of you are going to die. And those, some of you are uh, darker and poorer than the rest of the population. And that's just so fucking fucked up. I just, yeah, And it needs to be talked about in that way, too. Like I just I you know, so many of so many great reporters uh, who are racialized are just, you know, really struggling right now because a lot of them are freelance. Um, And I just wish uh, that that was the lens in which the news was talking about this. Like talk about it from the perspective of the people who stand to lose the most. Uh, who stand to have their lives permanently altered or died. Because, we, you know, we don't often talk enough about um, the stuff that's not just death. Like, you know, people who get sick and recover might have lung problems for the rest of their lives, might have um, problems uh, stemming from organs that are no longer going to work uh, as they once did as a result of how bad they got sick. And that's going to impact our communities, and like, and also like, just let's think about what it means to go back. If you are from a poor community who uh, lives, you know, in a crowded apartment building or a cro- crowded home with more than a single family, like <laughs> it spreads quicker in poorer communities because of the policies we've always had um, that don't allow people. Uh, to have uh, to be secure in their shelter, to be secure in their finances, and God, if you open up, it's not going to be like you know people going to work socially distanced at six feet and going home to their to their single family household where they don't have to interact with anybody else. That's not going to be the the world for everyone. That's only a certain segment of our population, and for everyone else, it just seems like they're they either like what don't know that we exist. Or don't give a fuck. like literally are like, you're disposable. Even as they're saying you're essential. Fuck you guys.
1: This is such an incredible moment to live through. And I think that what I'm like what I'm so struck by and, and the way that you described it makes me realize that we are witnessing like social engineering like, there's always social engineering. There's always like, we live in a white supremacist society. So there's always racialized labor market segmentation, but we are, are like, everything closed down and and then how they reopen it. It's like, we're just witnessing a government place, certain people at the top, certain people at the bottom, and then act as if it's just like, Oh no, this is just what public health says. Like it's totally safe. Don't worry. Everybody should go to school. The economy is really important. Like, There's a reason why across the United States and increasingly in Canada, everybody who's protesting to open the economy is white. The reason is because Mm -hmm. white people want this to go back to normal as soon as possible. And the white people Mm -hmm. that don't want it to go back to normal as soon as possible, like, at least get it. Like, they understand Or maybe they're poor, or maybe they're marginalized in some other way. But this, this like like obsession with the economy and getting things back to normal is—we easily could just be saying, we need to reinforce white supremacy across the economic system and we need to do it as fast as possible because to, to to ensure that the systems that we have stay in place we need to make sure that xyz are making tons of money over here and that uh, abc have their low income or migrant or or desperate workers over here to make sure that things are continuing as if there isn't a fucking uh, illness that is threatening all of us Uh, But, of course, it isn't actually threatening all of us uh, equally, right? You can see the statistics coming from the United States. And I think that, you know, with the United States where, like, the number of black Americans who have died is, like, unbelievably overproportionate in, in, in so many parts of the United States that Canadians can look at that and be like well you know here if you look at who's died like it's it's you know it's certainly targeting a, a population but it's an age population it's not as 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 as, as racially uh, obviously distorted as as we look in the United States which is kind of how Canadians always look at our our own situation go well it's not as bad as the United States but it, it plays itself out differently here it's the the racialized workers who are on the meat cutting floors or who are working in in mines or who are who are the personal uh, care workers who are going to be the ones that get the most sick or the ones the ones who die and so as you say it's like yeah the governments don't care and every time we talk about opening the economy it, it it like people should have in their mind okay how does this benefit white people and how does it disadvantage non white people and, and I think it's really difficult, I think, for, for, for people to appreciate that even though we're in the, like, we are just in a minute of crisis where po- partisan politics evaporated and everyone did everything together to, to, to try and pull together and make sure that no one dies and, and, and we're post- partisan politics and everyone's moving in the same direction guided by science, right? That was the moment of the last eight weeks. And so now the conversation is like, no, 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 no. We are now going to go back to where we were to make sure that that status quo that is so aggressively policed and entrenched, uh, we can go back to that as, as soon as we can.
0: As you were just talking about um, like the, the way that uh, society is, is socially engineered, like is being socially engineered through through this system, continually socially engineered through the, the way that we respond to this crisis. You know, I'm thinking that e- even as, you know, these these ridiculous protests are going on, like demanding the reopening of the economy. And I mean, like, think about it. These protests could be demanding anything. (laughs) They could be demanding support from the government, but they're demanding reopening the economy. It's just such a bizarre thing. Um, But but we, you know, those protests are happening even as governments are responding to the crisis in such a way that, re-entrenches all of the things that we're talking about Uh, like if you don't believe us just look at the financial measures that the government has uh has announced for people i mean the people at the top have access to the most money through all of like the business incentives uh and uh the 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 wage uh, what's it called what's the wage uh, benefit called i think that's just what people are calling it Sure, the the wage benefit that is going directly to employers, but they have no requirement to actually spend that uh, on employees. Like all, like there's so many programs for businesses to just uh, you know get as much money as possible as quickly as possible, and the programs that are for people, um, uh, you know, like the the individual guy who's like running out of money to pay rent, um. Are, have all of these restrictions put around them and require you again to certify uh, that you're willing to go back to work if you're offered a job. And it's like think about what that means. Like they literally in in supporting people uh, through one of the most difficult financial um, situations, uh, economic, health, political, whatever that we've seen, Um, in our certainly in my lifetime like they are still uh, re-entrenching the uh, the class system Mm -hmm. uh, that has made some of this stuff so terrible to begin with and still people are uh you know in as you say like in this white supremacist society are saying like we want more you have to do it like entrench it harder (laughs) get us back to the top as soon as as possible uh we don't want um to be uh, at the bottom at the end of this we want to be where we were before (laughs) and we don't give a shit about the disposables in our society uh who are black indigenous racialized people who gives a fuck about them And, you know, quite frankly, that's already already the way the government is responding. So I just like it just it's all bad. It's all disgusting. And uh, fuck, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot less of an impetus for us to give like ideas for how to fight back right now as there's like really hard to fight back. Yeah, but I mean, the, the thing is, though, Nora, that's frustrating is that we have had ideas, right? We've talked about them on this podcast. Ugh. I've seen other people have great ideas that they're talking about online. But why the fuck does the government not have ideas? Or <laughs> why are they so resistant to implementing fucking good ideas? I, I Like, why don't they want to fucking sit and think? And I mean, I know the answer to some of these questions because i've met a lot of politicians in my lifetime and i know that they're like really unimpressive people a lot of the time and perhaps don't have the capacity to think creatively like some of the rest of us do but it's just then like move over and like pick up these ideas from somebody else like i don't know it is it's it's possible to imagine a world beyond the one that brought us to this place in the first place hello it's possible (laughs) you know Like, fucking, can't we just do that instead of really trying to contort ourselves to fit back into a system that does not work for most of us and will not work for most of us through this crisis? It'll just make things worse. So we just have to be creative and think about something new. And, you know, the best thing about that is there's like a shit ton of people who all they've done is think about how society sucks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> come up mm-hmm. and come up with a bunch of ideas. So it's not like the ideas are not there. They're here. Like, we could fucking do this. Just look at the Quebec school
1: system, right? They, they could have said, okay, all classes are going to be outside in community parks, starting whenever the fuck, five kids per class. Like, they could that'd be possible. It's totally possible. I know that our listeners know this, but, I mean, if there's one thing that we can learn from this pandemic, people really have to appreciate that government is not operating in good faith. They're not operating on the best interests of, of all citizens. They're not even operating on the best research and knowledge. <laughs> like, no. I I heard uh, someone um, defend the Quebec uh, decision today on the radio by saying, well, obviously they have a plan. Uh, proof that they have a plan is that they've picked very specific targets for how many people will be tested and so that's that's proof that they have a plan they wouldn't have come up with specific targets if they didn't have a plan to get to those targets
0: oh my god and,
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> no, ah! and it's national radio right and and i mean like in fairness to um to the journalist who was interviewing this person that was pia Chetapadai, like aside from going i'm sorry are you f- like re- like do you believe in the tooth fairy as well um there's not a whole lot <laughs> you can push back on someone who says that with a straight face and so, um, but, but we do need to make sure that people uh, understand that every single decision that has been made, been made during this pandemic has a reason behind it. And if it looks like it makes no sense, it's because you're operating on a kind of logic that, like, puts people first and assumes that governments are operating in the best interest of the people that they represent. Which,
0: I mean, <laughs> they don't. No, they don't.